Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Benjamin Hawkeye Pierce from the TV show MASH. And joining me for the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. So we are talking about Hawkeye from MASH, which I will just acknowledge was actually one of the very first TV shows we tried to cover on the Protagonist Podcast. <laughs> but uh, we couldn't find its streaming home was uh, was not consistent. Uh, in this those is early the first days. time I've seen it scene that it was streaming when when we yeah. looked it up to talk about it i was like oh it is streaming right now yeah so we, we, a couple times we we tried to get a hold of it and we just weren't able to line up uh being able to watch it and so now it's on hulu and so andrew and i decided to finally talk about one of the most famous tv shows um and also the answer to a particular trivia question that <laughs> anytime you have a question about highest rated scripted television it is always the mash finale everyone and likely to always and forever be the MASH finale. So MASH was a TV show that ran for 11 seasons from 1972 to 1983. We were discussing the episodes Adam's Rib, which is the 11th episode of the third season. That aired on November 26, 1974, and was written by Lawrence Marks and directed by Gene Reynolds. In this episode, Hawkeye is fed up with the food served at the base and tries to order ribs from a restaurant in Chicago. We are also discussing the series finale, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. This was a special two and a half hour finale, five episodes <laughs> stitched together. It was the 16th episode of the 11th season, though really it was like 16 through 21, <laughs> I think. Uh, and it was written by uh, many people who had worked on the show. So here's the list. Alan Alda, Burt Metcalf, John Rappaport, Dan Wilcox, Thad Mumford, Elias Davis, and David Pollock, and K Karen Hall. And it was directed by Alan Alda, who also stars as Hawkeye Pierce. And in this episode, it takes place in the final days of the Korean War as the main characters prepare to leave uh, Korea. Andrew, do you know how you first came to MASH? It's one of those things that you're like vaguely aware of. In a lot of cases. And so I think that's really my introduction to it. I oh, I think my real knowledge of Alan Alda is from the West Wing. And and then I, I saw a couple of episodes here and there, but have not watched it properly. And I'm not like a big sitcom guy. So so it wouldn't have been uh, well on my radar. <laughs> um, do, I'll ask that question later, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. At this point, this is the most I've consumed of MASH directly. And it's just a ubiquitous cultural item. Right? Like, yeah. I knew what the logo looked like very mm -hmm. well before before this. And I had like a color scheme. It's like, okay, yeah, you've got the yellow on the like on the the military greenish gray and the scrub land that they're in. Mm -hmm. You know, I had some visuals of it, but like, I don't remember it being, you know, on Nick at night, like Gilligan's Island or Dick Van Dyke show were. See, I think I, it was on Nick at night. Some, it, or it was on something, memory. right? Obviously it was yeah. syndicated. So yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And it was It'd always kind of around. floating around like TBS, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, it might be on or something like that. My memory is, is kind of being aware of it because 
um, in that early 90s when I would watch some Nick at Night for like the Dick Van Dyke show or the Mary Tyler Moore show. I think this was like a bumper show. Like it was either ending before one of those began or or something. So I, I saw snippets of it. I don't know that I've ever actually sat down and watched a full episode of MASH until today. I think I've, I've consumed many episodes and pieces across like catching snippets here in syndication, um, but never actually like sat down and just pulled it on up. To, to watch a full episode until I was preparing for, for, for this. But I was also, I don't know how much of it is in catching those snippets or just kind of the general cultural awareness of it. I think I could have named every character I saw. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the actors all felt familiar, even though I've never like sat and binged a season of MASH or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, I, I think our, our brother Adam watched quite a bit of MASH uh, at one point in our childhood. So it probably caught uh, like a lot of the voices, uh, you know, and that, that kind of thing wandering mm-hmm. around. So um, it is definitely part of the, the cultural lexicon though, like you said, even if you're not super familiar with it, uh, you know, or, or a big fan, you probably are somewhat aware of mash being an important part of TV history. Yeah. So this TV show is a spinoff of the 1970 film mash, which was an adaptation of Richard Hooker's 1968 novel mash, a novel about three army doctors. The only character to appear in both the film and the TV show was, do you know? I have no idea. Radar. That is the only consistency between the film and, and the, okay. and the TV series. So the, the movie does not have Hawkeye. Nope. Because um, because the show's kind of about Hawkeye. Yeah. And I think he is. So, I mean, there is a huge cast uh, in MASH. And some of it does rotate in and out. But Hawkeye is. You know, is, when you've got 11 years. Yeah. Uh, he appears in. I believe it's every episode there. He, it says he has 256 appearances. I'm trying to see double check if I can get it. Yeah. He's in every single episode of the show. He's the only character that's in every single episode. The next most frequently appearing character is Margaret Houlihan, the nurse. She's mm-hmm. in 239 episodes. Oh, okay. Uh, that's pretty, so that, pretty substantial. Yeah. There's, there's kind of a, a big dip there. <laughs> um, and, and it's such a large ensemble. Uh, even if, if there's like a season where, uh, you know, Houlihan's a regular. I mean, she was a regular, I think, through in, in every single season. There might be some episodes where she just doesn't show up, not because, you know, for any reason other than just like there's so many characters to serve. We're not quite getting everyone's screen time this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like even if you're running a, an A, a B and a C plot, that still might only be nine characters and you've got 15. Yeah. And there's a number of characters like uh, Henry Blake and Trapper. Uh, they are there for the first three seasons. And then some new characters come on. Uh, Honeycutt and Potter come on in seasons uh, four through 11. And they're both regulars for you know those latter half seasons. So there's some swapping out uh, of characters. But um, it's it's uh, like you said, it is it does feel like Hawkeye show. So when I was typing it up, like I'm sure we're going to touch on these other characters. But like if you're going to talk about MASH, it's kind of you, you got to talk about Alan Alda as Hawkeye. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's the the driving force. Mm-hmm. And he, behind the scenes, he's going to become a driving force. Uh, he's going to become a producer uh, and uh, help guide the stories. And he's going to direct a number of episodes, too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he he is definitely a key part uh, of this. So um, the film and TV series are set during the Korean War which um, we just covered. This is an 11-year TV series. Do you know how long the Korean War lasted, Andrew? Three years. <laughs> Three years, yep. <laughs> Began in 1950 and ended in 1953. Uh, so, a little bit of history there. North Korea was aided by China and the Soviet Union, while South Korea was supported by the United States and its allies. Um, historically, Japan had annexed Korea in 1910 and ruled there until the end of the World War II. At that point, the United States and Soviet Union divided Korea along the 38th parallel, because that always works great when foreign powers just kind of start carving up 
spaces mm-hmm. um <laughs> ne- never has caused an issue in the history of uh <laughs> of empires right um so they u.s and soviet union just divided up korea into north and south um In 1948, the two occupied areas became sovereign states, but both new governments considered themselves the sole proper government for all of Korea. And then in June 1950, North Korea, with approval from Stalin, invaded South Korea, setting off a hot proxy war in America's Cold War with the Soviet Union. In 1953, after the Korean forces were pushed back to essentially where the borderlines had started, an armistice was signed that established the DMZ. And technically, no peace treaty has ever been signed to end the war. So the countries are still at war. Um, and though it only lasted three years, the Korean war is considered one of the most destructive wars in all of history with 3 million fatalities and a larger proportional civilian death toll than world war two or the Vietnam war. So, uh, some major tolls, uh, which Mm -hmm. actually like get explicitly listed in the mash finale that we're going to be talking about. Yeah. Um, so as we noted, Korean war last three years, TV series ran for 11. It was deliberately a commentary about the Vietnam war, not the Korean war. Uh, so it's, you know, the classic move of like, we're setting it somewhere else so we can talk about something right now yeah. <laughs> and have a little safety of saying it's all metaphorical. Uh, the U S involvement in the Vietnam war did end during the show's run though. Um, so uh, it becomes almost a commentary about war, war uh, broadly. Yeah. More broadly. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, a strongly anti-war text um, in uh, how it's going to explore some of the uh, many repercussions of war. So the episode Adam's ribs um, is one episode that we're going to talk about. And they made up a restaurant named Adam's ribs for this episode. Doesn't exist in Chicago. Does it now? In 2008, a restaurant that long changed its name to Adam's Ribs to piggyback off the still resonant interest in a Chicago barbecue restaurant from this episode of MASH. It took that long? It took that long, but also it still is because of like interest in a a barbecue joint called Adam's Ribs. (laughs) Yeah, because of Alan Alda's, uh, you know, rhapsodic uh, monologue that he delivers about the ribs that he ate once in Chicago. It's it's free advertising every time people rewatch MASH. Yep. (laughs) But yeah, I was surprised both that it took so long, but also that it was still resonant enough for it, uh, you know, decades on to Mm -hmm. uh, to take place there. So um, at one point in the Adam's Ribs episode, Hawkeye is going to use the fake name Cranston Lamont, which is a play on the name Lamont Cranston, a nod to one of the shadows aliases often identified as a secret identity. But that is a messy point in the uh, the history of of the shadow. shadow. (laughs) Yes. Um, in the near the end of the production for the TV show MASH, the set, which was in California, uh, I can't remember exactly where, but it was the, the whole set was burned by brush fire. And they just incorporated that into the finale where um, there's a moment where uh, incendiary bombs near their MASH unit uh, are seen on the horizon and they have to evacuate they, and go they to clear a new out and, and they come then, back and, and, and then some they come of back to out. a completely burned out MASH set. That was their real mash set had burned. Oh, wow. So they just uh, were able to work it in. You know, I thought like when the fire was coming, I was like, okay, here's another thing, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I could not figure out how late into the game that it was that this happened and they incorporated mm -hmm. it. Um, Because also I know like it's it's pretty it's referenced several times when you look up trivia about this, that 
um, the final season was filmed out of order and they filmed the whole finale a bit before they, f- they finished filming some of the other episodes. Uh, they did have interior sets that were made to mimic all their tents and, uh, you know, everything. So they, so they could, could do that stuff. It, uh, after the, it burned out, but I'm like, did they go rebuild it for any of those other episodes? I could not find anything on that. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this finale, like I said, is famous for the trivia that it is the most watched uh for a long time it was the most watched anything in the history of television of american television uh now it usually gets the title of the most watched scripted episode of television because uh the super bowl uh in 2010 finally surpassed it in total viewers but not in at share least, at least there's by a larger estimate yeah, but there's a larger population in the United States, you know, considerably larger. So mm-hmm. it's the Super Bowl share is not even close to what the um, the MASH finale share was. And also, it's worth noting, large areas of California had a power outage during the finale. And the local CBS station re-aired the entire finale a few weeks later. Now, I was like, why did it take a few weeks? And then I realized, <laughs> because the finale is two and a half hours long, that is an entire night of television they have to reschedule. It's not like yeah, so swap they had one. To- sitcom episode quite here. a bit of stuff yeah they, they had to find when can we rearrange our entire night's uh you know setup and i'm sure ad sales and everything i'm sure it was a massive headache for them mm-hmm. uh because uh, also because it was a two essentially a, like a two and a half hour film when mash went to syndication the finale did not go with it for a long time uh you would only be able to watch it if there was ever like a very special airing of the full finale oh that does make sense like you could break it up I don't. But, I, yeah, I was kind of paying attention. Like I should. I wish I had paid even closer attention. But I don't feel like it had natural act breaks every half hour. Not not that consistently. There yeah. there were some natural breaks to it, but I don't mm-hmm. know that it would be consistent half hour where you could suddenly break it into five episodes that you just sell as part of the exactly package. Exactly. And I mean, this thing had uh, two hundred fifty six episodes. It's not like they're hurting on the syndication numbers. No, the syndication can say we're just not going to air those. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the finale had an average of 159.7 million viewers, meaning like per minute, 159 million people were watching. Uh, But an estimated 121 million people watched some of the finale. Uh, And that remains the most watched episode of scripted television in American history. Uh, The Super Bowl, like I said, does sometimes pass it now for the first time it happened in 2010. Do you know what the what would you guess? the most watched scripted episode of television last year was. So 2022. I mean, are we? So watched live? I wouldn't have guessed even the show. Are are you saying like broadcast, watched live? Well, okay, so there was a list of highest ratings. I don't know. Streaming. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's gonna, yeah, it wouldn't be on Netflix. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, the, the Nielsen ratings most watched scripted episode last year, which Ugh. I think now Nielsen does a plus seven. So like people could record on their DVR and if they watch it within a week. Okay. Can. So, so, but it, you know, that means recorded from TV, not watched on, on, on a, a streaming service. Probably. I, I mean, I don't know. Does it include like the Hulu plus live or the YouTube plus live? I, um, ah, oh, man, it's so complicated now. Yeah. Um, is is it a oh can you give me comedy or drama it's a drama okay it's a drama i would say a prestige drama not a standard network drama it takes a little while to get reached a network is it something on hbo then no it's on the paramount network oh 
Uh, I have no idea then. It's Yellowstone. The finale, oh. season finale of Yellowstone reached mm-hmm. 13 million viewers, and that was the most watched scripted television last year. Nothing on network one, TV. One tenth cleared of, 13 million of what mash had yeah i think uh a little ways down i think it was around 11 million uh there was an ncis episode on cbs mm. still going ncis <laughs> and still pulling in over 10 million viewers so it will never end as long as people are willing yeah. <laughs> to keep making it i should have known about yellowstone i always forget that it, it it's a broadcast show yeah because it feels like a, a streamer yeah, it well, also, it, it feels it like a streamer the, that I, that I'm not watching. It also airs on the Paramount Network, which just still does not feel like a real channel. <laughs> what Paramount Paramount Plus? It's not Paramount Plus. It's on the Paramount Network on your cable package. Oh, uh, which uh, oh, I don't think so that weird. channel actually existed that long ago. I think it may be a rebrand of an existing CBS style mm-hmm. channel. Of yeah, something. some some sort of CBS affiliate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay that that does track. That's an extremely popular show. Yeah. Um, let's see a little bit more trivia. There's so much trivia on mash. I mean, we could just keep going forever on that alone. Uh, but there was a sequel series called after mash that was produced. It lasted for two seasons and it told the story of some of the characters lives after the return to the States. There was another spinoff pilot that was filmed in 1984, but it never actually aired. Um, so, uh, that is my trivia about mash. Um, uh, again, I would just note, like if you want to spend a good, 20 minutes or more you could just go look up the mash page on wikipedia it is one of the more extensive tv pages i've ever seen (laughs) well when you have 11 years yeah do you know can you say off the top of your head what the acronym mash stands for oh yeah i'm not gonna do it just kidding (laughs) Uh, (laughs) mobile army surgical hospital yes yeah uh and that's another one i i'm sure it's because of this show like i think i kind of like i can't remember not knowing that acronym and it must be because of this TV show. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to the summary of these episodes, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also give updates on our fantasy box off, which is spicier this year than some years past <laughs> the competition yeah so all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on to the spoiler zone summary all right adam's ribs this one i i will say i did enjoy a good 1970s sitcom episode with an a plot period <laughs> <laughs> there there is the plot yep <laughs> All right, after being served fish or liver as the only options for lunch for 11 days in a row, Hawkeye Pierce can't handle it anymore. He decides that he desperately wants the most delicious ribs he can remember ever eating. It was from a restaurant in Chicago near the Dearborn station. He can't remember the name of the restaurant, but he becomes obsessed. In the middle of the night, he gets Radar up to go get a call placed to Chicago. Radar jumps through all the hoops of getting to uh, a Chicago station, and they are able to find out the name of the restaurant is Adam's Ribs, and then he's able to get connected to the restaurant itself. And he places an order for 40 pounds of uncooked ribs and a gallon of their barbecue sauce. He forgets the coleslaw, though, and that that's going to haunt him. Uh, now he has to figure out how to get this shipped to Korea. Another surgeon remembers a girl he knew in Chicago for a one night, no, two night, no, three night stand uh, <laughs> and calls her up and persuades her to ship the package, but mark it as medical supplies. 
The package gets held up at a supply depot. Hawkeye and Trapper go to get it and have to negotiate with the supply sergeant before they finally get it released. Uh, the sergeant is from the Chicago area and uh, negotiates barters for a portion of their ribs. Back at camp, the ribs are prepared. Hawkeye can't wait to eat them. But before anyone can take a single bite, a group of wounded soldiers are brought to the base and everyone leaves the meal on the table to go to surgery. The end. All right. Uh, and then the long finale. Goodbye, farewell, and amen. For clarity, as we do sometimes, I'm going to streamline plots. So it does lots of cutting between characters. I'm going to kind of give you like the main beats for each character. And in your head, just imagine these are uh, intersected through editing. <laughs> so Hawkeye is being treated at a psychiatric hospital. He's not at a uh, 4077. That's what it's called, right? The 4077? Yeah. Um, he is meeting with a psychiatrist. He talks about having been on a beach outing and then taking a pleasant bus ride back to the 4077. Then he remembers that they picked up some wounded soldiers and refugees during the drive. Uh, and then he also remembers that during the bus ride back, they had to pull off the road and be silent while a Chinese patrol was looking for them. But a refugee woman had this chicken on the bus that would not stay quiet. So Hawkeye told her she had to keep it quiet or everyone would be killed. Uh, and then he has this breakthrough where he remembers that it wasn't a chicken, but the woman had been holding a crying baby and had actually smothered it to death while trying to keep it quiet so that everyone wasn't killed by the Chinese patrol. Uh, back at the 4077. And, and, and that is why he had a psychotic break. Yes. Why Why he's being helped because he, he could not face the trauma. Uh, and okay, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in this. As soon as he has this like memory and realizes what had actually happened, the psychiatrist is like, good, go back to active duty right now. <laughs> I think the, the, I think it's supposed to imply that it's been at least days, if not like maybe yeah. two weeks. <laughs> but it's like, as soon as he but remembers feel... the doctor's like, good, you were in denial. Now we've gotten through denial. You're ready to be in surgery again. Yeah. It, it does feel a little jarring, but in my head, I was like, okay, he's got to be like two weeks that he's been like working after the fact. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, that didn't feel very abrupt, but also I'm going to guess it was not inaccurate to the way some issues were dealt with in the military. Well, I mean, he, he says, he specifically says, you know, well, Doc, it's just like with the normal soldiers, when we get them, you know, functional again, we put them right back in the foxhole. Yeah, that, that's what's best for them. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah it's a, this is shortly after World War II. We're still sorting out some things, I will just say. <laughs> so back at the 4077, a tank driven by a wounded soldier comes through their base and destroys their latrine. Uh, because the enemy can now see that a tank is parked there, the camp begins to get bombed regularly. Because uh, if there's a tank there, it's not a uh, uh, going to be considered a, a Red Cross base, right? Uh, neutral. Yeah, yeah. With, with a tank, it's it's active. Mm -hmm. Unable to use the latrine that was destroyed by the tank. Uh, Charles, oh, what's his last name? So I'm blanking on his last name. Win Winchester, right? Winchester. Yeah, Charles Winchester, who is kind of an upper class snob. Yeah, he's a, he's a real Fraser. Yes, that's that's good. Good call there. <laughs> he uh, wanders away from camp to go to the bathroom in privacy, away from everyone else. Uh, but he runs into a group of Chinese soldiers. At first, he's terrified, but then he realizes they want to surrender to him and are, in fact, a group of five musicians. Winchester loves music. He's always listening to classical music records, uh, and he teaches these mu musicians as they are POWs. He teaches them to play Mozart on their instruments. 
Now, Margaret Houlihan, one of the nurses, is trying to decide what she wants to do after the war. They they are getting reports that the end of war may be near. There's there's talks. Yeah. Uh, her dad keeps suggesting different jobs for her and pulling strings to get her position in different places all over the world. Um, she uses some of her family influence to get Winchester a job at a hospital in Boston. Father uh, Mulcahy is caught in a bomb blast when he's trying to rescue some POWs from being killed by friendly fire from their side. So the, the base is being bombed and there's a group of POWs that are locked up and father Mulcahy runs to, to let them out so that they don't get killed. Um, mm-hmm. And because of this bomb blast, he has hearing damage, which uh, he's told is going to be permanent, but he wants to hide it so that he can stay in Korea and continue to work with the orphans and refugees. Uh, Klinger, who is one of the characters has been there since the very beginning uh, of the show. Um, and historically has done everything he can to get discharged from the military <laughs> and can set home. He's desperate, desperate to be sent home. Uh, but he has fallen in love with a refugee named Soon Lee Han. She is very worried about her missing parents and brother who were last seen in an active war zone and Klinger is trying to help her to find them. Uh, now BJ Honeycutt is desperate to get back to his family uh, in the States. His daughter's about to have her second birthday and he wants to be there for her. Uh, and he gets a chance to transfer back to the States. It almost feels like it might be a clerical error, but he is desperate to just take it. Um, and he uh, eventually is able to get on a helicopter and leave the base before anyone else. Now, Hawkeye, having confronted the trauma that he was in denial about, is sent right back to active duty. The Vor 077 is still being bombed, so he drives the tank out of the off the base <laughs> so that they will not be considered uh, active military anymore. Uh, in like, he's not following orders. He's not. He he's just taking taking charge of that. This is this is like the most consistent with Hawkeye as I understand him. This is this is Hawkeye in the show. Yeah, Hawkeye. Well, let's finish the summary and then we'll we'll dig into a little of like your idea of Hawkeye and, you know, what we know of Hawkeye having not, again, watched a terribly much mash, but it is a character that is so resonant. I feel like we know that character type in a lot of ways. So there's a nearby forest fire that's going to force the group to relocate. A new surgeon is being sent to replace Honeycutt. But when the helicopter lands, BJ Honeycutt gets off. He had made it all the way to Guam before he was ordered back to Korea. He sees Hawkeye, his best friend, uh, and tells him that he wanted to write him a note before he left on the helicopter, but there was no time because of the clerical error that kind of made it possible for him to leave at all. Uh, the musicians that Winchester had trained are sent off in a prisoner exchange, and they play Mozart as they leave for Winchester. Uh, a ceasefire is announced, ending the war, but wounded soldiers are still pouring into the MASH unit um, from the, the end of the fighting. So the surgeons are basically working nonstop on wounded soldiers as they're listening to radio reports about peace. Um, as they're for, for performing surgery after surgery, the radio announcer lists the toll of the war and mentions that uh, with the end of hostilities in Korea, international interest is turning to Vietnam. And someone's like, where in the world is Vietnam? Uh, <laughs> I've never even heard of that in an ominous note for this sitcom comedy coming to its serious finale. Um, Winchester recognizes a fatally wounded patient. Uh, it is one of the musicians that he had bonded with, uh, who was a POW. He asks what happened to the others that were on the truck with him. And he's told that uh, this wounded man who's, who is going to die uh, was the only one who lived long enough to even make it to surgery. After finishing uh, his uh, time in the surgery, he goes to his tent and he tries to listen to music, but he ends up shattering his uh, music, classical records because music will never be a comfort to him again. 
At a final camp dinner before the Americans depart, uh, Klinger reveals that he's engaged to Soon Lee, and after spending the entire MASH series trying to get discharged from the army so that he can leave Korea and go back to the United States, he'll be staying in Korea with Soon Lee to help her find her family. Uh, in the final scene, uh, BJ Honeycutt gives Hawkeye a ride to his helicopter that he'll be leaving in. Honeycutt tells Hawkeye that he left him a note this time, and as the helicopter leaves, Hawkeye looks down and sees rocks on the ground spelling out, goodbye. The end. Andrew, how did you enjoy the final comedic episode of one of the most famous sitcoms in history? I I don't think I could watch MASH <laughs> now. Like having seen like a handful of episodes plus the finale, I like part of me is just part of me's really angry. Like there so I sat down to to watch, you know. The two episodes that we were going to watch is like, okay, you know, this would be pretty quick. And at some point I paused it. It was like, this seems long. Oh, I'm halfway through. It's been an hour and I'm halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but also I have a young baby. Yeah. And I oh, don't. That, that scene with the baby. It I, is I do not know if hard. I can forgive this show yeah. for being classified as a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And for having a laugh track in as part of the show in general. And, 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 and also like, I mean, Adam's ribs, it's not like funny, funny. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, wow, these guys are pretty desperate. You know, it is, it, it, that one feels sitcomish, uh huh, but not tremendously funny. Especially because it, it doesn't even give you a little bit of release at the end. Like they have to leave the ribs, which is the right. Well, you know, that, that feels they should do. And that, it, it that feels like it mash. On. Uh, on a sad note right yeah it's it's got that bounce but it's like okay on the whole i have a hard time believing that the movie that started this was laugh out loud funny you know like mm-hmm. and then i we I started the we started a classic comedy i've never seen it but i know yeah, it's, I, yeah i have no idea and i can see you know how how elements of it would be funny but also i don't know if just like the I know that they are being critical of the war. Yeah. And, and like, I get all of that, but also they do it by being pretty serious about it a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, wait, where's the funny? Like they're not making fun of the war. They're not saying, you know, anything about the war is funny or anything. They are like using the barest minimum of, this is comedy so that they can be like pretty biting about Mm -hmm. the nature of war and how hard this is and refugee crisis and prisoner of war and orphans and and orphans and, and you know, like how hard all of this is and And also the emotional toll on on people who are living through it, the trauma, the they're critical of the draft. Yeah. And, and like, no, you can't play that for laughs because if you laugh about, you know, oh, well, these guys were all drafted, you know, and they didn't want to be there. Then it's like, well, yeah, but if it's a joke, then it's not critical. Right. And so I think everything that they actually want this to be is pretty serious. And I, I think it has the barest minimum of of comedy to it. Mm-hmm. It's all done really well. It's yes. It's, it's <laughs> extremely. Some of it is calibrating well, expectations. Well, this created. was a, a half hour show on network television in the 70s and 80s. We have a set of expectations for what that is. And, and, and a sitcom. 
you know, mm-hmm. it, like it is a situational comedy. So the presentation of it is, you know, you should laugh. You know, yeah. we have watched shows from the same time period. Yeah, we've and, done, and, uh, and like before, before and after this time period, yeah. where it's like, yeah, these are these are funny. Gilligan's Island is like full of jokes. Mm-hmm. Dick Van Dyke is full of jokes. Yeah, and this is like, I like it couldn't have gotten away with it. It never would have made eleven seasons if the presentation of it wasn't a sitcom. Somehow, yeah. like as much as I think it's like. And I wonder if they were very sensitive to that idea and very aware of that idea. It's like, okay, we have to make this as a sitcom. We do not really have to write a lot of jokes mm-hmm. because that's not what we're doing. And somehow they got away with it in a way that I don't know if it would happen now. Like it just feels like it's, it, it feels like a wolf in sheep's clothing. So the a show that comes later that this gets, that gets compared to mash, not, for every episode that it does, but for some of the episodes where it does a very similar thing is scrubs because scrubs will have some episodes mm-hmm. that it's all about hitting you with the emotional. Yeah, weight they've got of, a somber note of uh, like, there's one famous episode that begins with like uh, in the emergency room, like we're told to kind of expect um, that one in three of the patients that we see are going to die. And then the opening of the episode is three doctors seeing three different patients. So you're like, okay, one of these three is going to die. The episode kills all three of those patients mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and has all the doctors traumatized at the end of it. And that's the way the sitcom episode ends, you know, of scrubs, but it still maintains a lighter tone than mash as it's doing that. And a more postmodern yes. zaniness, um, even as it is going to about to pull the emotional rug out from under you. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd say on the whole scrubs is much more upbeat than mash. Mash is an anti-war text uh, that is being presented in a sitcom format. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I think more so than most comedies, I started to think of Mash like House, mm-hmm. uh, especially because of and and we'll get into the this, medical sure. drama House, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I especially because as and I'm sure we'll talk about it with Hawkeye. Hawkeye is like a prototype Doctor House. He is an outsider doctor. He is rebellious. He is harsh. He is. Uh, you know, he'll break the rules. He, he's crass. Yeah, he, like he he'll but, he'll but do he all breaks of those the things. Rules often for a greater good, sometimes for selfishness, which is what yeah. an outsider hero does both. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, okay, what is the point of this? I'm going to go solve this problem. Yes, I'm breaking rules, and yes, it's against the letter of the law, and all of these kinds of things. But like, I'm doing this to save lives. And 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 overall, I'd say, like Doctor House, probably less of a good person than yeah. than Hawkeye Pierce. Mm-hmm. He definitely uh, does more. But, than but there's stuff. a there's a model. Of, okay, he is, you know, he is against the authority. He is not happy to be here. He is fighting against the the authority figures constantly. But he's also incredibly good at his job. Mm-hmm. And, he, uh, and he's indispensable. Yeah. And here. and and so I, I, like, somehow they got away with, you know, putting this in a certain category. And I think that it doesn't belong there. I think the the core of what MASH is, is not funny stuff. Yeah, so let me read a little bit from uh, TV The Book by Alan Sep- uh, Sepinwall and Matt Zoller sites. Uh, they ranked the, uh, I think, 100 uh, best TV series and did a write-up on each one of them. MASH came in at a, number 11 mm-hmm. on their list. And there's a, a few snippets that I kind of marked that because I read through. Their write-up is about uh, five or six pages for, uh, you know, uh, series here. Um, but a few things that I noted. So... 
talking about it early on, it says the series original producers, Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds resisted CBS's orders to add a laugh track. They wanted the show to have real stakes so that the jokes would feel like welcome relief from the horrors beyond the camp as a compromise. They were allowed to mute laughter during the surgical scenes, but they add a laugh track in the other scenes. And I think that gets lessened uh, as the series progresses. Okay. Like they pull yeah, out like yeah. in the finale. I don't remember hearing the laugh track. But um, but it could have been there, and I just didn't take note of it. But also, like, I, I like I texted you this morning, and we we talked about it in preparation for recording this. I'm like, how many how many jokes can you count from the finale? And I'm like, I mean, the latrine got ran over twice. <laughs> it's pretty pretty good stuff there. Uh, and and like, there's like, some the, even the, some the, of the, the jokes that are like sitcommy jokes have like a somber undertone to them mm-hmm. uh so like talking about what they're going to do when they get home uh there's often like the rhythm of like setup punchline but then it's like pause and you realize the punchline maybe has some double meanings <laughs> mm-hmm. well, and and um like one of the maybe the biggest thing that felt like oh like i, I like this is a gag was when the doctor got flown back from guam he was like two-thirds of the way home oh but that, it is not treated as a joke at all but it's like it's like, I guess that's kind of like, uh, man, isn't it funny kind of thing. But or, the, or like the classic reset of the sitcom where like, yeah. okay, we're giving the illusion of change, but no change like, actually is ever going to happen. Like here. seeing a character come back like that in a different sitcom is is a, is a funny dynamic. Like, like you'd get a wah, wah, wah. Yeah. And for <laughs> this one, it's kind of like, I guess a little wah, wah, wah. But really, they set up a the lot stakes. Like, ah, oh, man. Yeah, because they'd set up the stakes of him getting home for his daughter's and birthday, then, like so much, and and then he's still never there for so much as like a joke or like the Sisyphusian. Uh, you're like, oh, he's doing this always. It's like, no, he's actually getting out. Uh, and yeah, and we we felt and, some relief. And they had a, a whole scene where they're like, okay, this seems like a clerical error. Like, clearly, everyone wants to go home. He's like, I will ask, and if people are really upset with me, I'll stay here. And everyone's like, "Great, get out of here!" Like, if, if you can get out, you if get you out. can like you can get out. You can go see your daughter. Awesome! And everyone's like really happy for him. Clearly, this is a good guy that makes people happy. He's been yeah. he's not a selfish jerk. And so people are like, "Yep, like way to go!" And then he comes back and he does the work and he like he's in the operating room. And then so it's it's like like there's like a fifteen percent want 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 and then like. 45 percent oh man and then like shortly after everyone's trying to be as supportive and cheerful with him as possible when they're like doing the party with the orphans and everything like we know you missed your daughter's birthday like yeah but it's really great that you're connecting with the kids here as well and we've we've prepared a cake for these kids as as kind of like an homage to what you're dealing with and like everyone's really sweet about it i'm like what's the where are the jokes? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let me read a little bit more from, again, from TV, the book by Seppenwall and Zoller Seitz. Um, Let's see. As executive producer. And so this is talking about like the, the transformation that the show goes on. It goes through throughout its run. Uh, Alda transformed MASH from a comedy with serious moments to a drama that paused for wise cracks. The more anarchic early years of Gilbert and Reynolds, or even the middle seasons with head writers, Ken Levine and David Isaacs, who both worked on some of my favorite sitcoms ever, Cheers and Frasier. Uh, uh, those were better and more well-rounded versions of the show uh, and ones that had no problem going very grim when the occasion called for it. But despite fans gripes about the more, 
virtuous late 70s incarnations of Hawkeye and BJ and Hot Lips Houlihan, these later seasons gave MASH an added weight that made the finale, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, feel less like a sitcom finale than a wake for a revered institution. <laughs> and yeah, it, like like you're saying, this is not like a jokey sitcom finale. Even uh, like I recently watched the finale of Modern Family, which I'd never seen. I saw some of Modern Family when it started, kind of lost lost touch with it. But we recently mm-hmm. were watching it with our daughter. Um, and that's and got we, like like 11 seasons, right? It's 11 seasons. You you form good parasocial bonds with all these characters. And the finale has lots of like saying goodbye. Like we want you as an audience to say goodbye to each one of these characters. We're going to give mm-hmm. you a moment to remember how much they mean to you. We're going to flash back to the early episodes when they were like children actors. And now they're adult actors because it's 11 years later. You know, all the tricks. But it's still a sitcom episode that gives you so, all it, it the setups and beats and laughs. And yeah. And this one does not feel like a sitcom episode. Like, and that is, I think it's more to say for our listeners, that is an issue of our expectations going in. It is mm-hmm. not an issue with the quality of the episode. The episode no, 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 is no. doing what it wants. It's, <laughs> it has made an extremely effective, like dramatic finale. Like yeah. I, it reminded me of watching the finale of lost mm-hmm. and like, this is serious and people have been through some stuff. And they have complex feelings about having gone through those experiences. Like, like I'm not going to miss it because this sucks. This yeah. is a terrible experience. But there's something akin to missing it that will happen. It, yeah. it like it is part of me now, and part of me is going to be gone now. You know, like like I think that's when they do the 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 dinner. And there's, you know, those conversations, there's an element of like missing each other, but also I don't think they ever say that because that would be too sentimental about what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. But then, but, but there's like, I'm not going to miss it, but something's going, going to be missing. If that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. I am not going to experience a sense of longing for this. Yeah. But something will be missing from my life after this, you know, like I have settled into this, this has become a part of me. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, yeah. I like what you're saying about that. The, you know, that the, the ending, uh, like a, a key part of the, the finale is kind of Hawkeye and uh, Honeycutt realizing that we're really never going to see each other again. <laughs> yeah. Like, like for, for our audiences, we've been best friends for, uh seven years because honeycutt comes in in season four yeah like uh, they've been roommates and and best friends on the show but it's like well they might not necessarily be even friends yeah like like the odds of them actually ever seeing one another are very low like honeycutt's like well you know maybe one year i'll bring the wife and the kid out and like, we'll see you and it's like once maybe, maybe we get we can make that work and and hawkeye is like that's nice but clearly he's saying that that's not gonna happen <laughs> like our lives are just gonna be so so diff- different uh and, and so it is um like there's definitely a somberness uh, that mm. that's present there. And uh, I mean, MASH, I've seen it listed as like one of the shows that helped people like uh, or, or popularize the term dramedy, um, you know, for the for the dramatic comedy. Um, because it's really hard to just label MASH as a comedy <laughs> straight up. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so it makes sense that it's it's finale is going to lean into i i think the more dramatic side I, I, again I, th- I think especially after alan alda uh was helping to guide the tone of the series um they really wanted to in some ways be doing commentary about war <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it, it, I, i'd say 
him in particular, it's like, oh, I don't think he wants to be funny. Yeah. I think he wants to be uh, biting. Yes, where th- there is definitely an edge uh, to some of the, lo- uh, the, you know, the lines that he says that make you smirk or kind of give a little guffaw. It's mm-hmm. sometimes like a guffaw of shock, like, oh, he went there. Yeah. Um, and he's a great performer, and his voice is so perfect for television. Um, there's just the quality of the sound of Alan Aldo's, Aldo's voice mm-hmm. when he's giving that, impa- you know, an impassioned impa- monologue. Mm-hmm. It elevates the words on the page, and the words on the page are good. But having Alan Alda there, just there's something about his voice that is just so distinct uh, and, and perfect and, for and, for this. And he does. I, I think now we should probably dig into like talking about the characters and, mm-hmm. and, you know, what we see of them in pretty limited snippets. But I think so. Let's start with Hawkeye and, and see what time we have left for everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he can do big and small. He can do intense and and subtle he can do it all um mm-hmm. you know there's scenes where like in in adam's ribs he's literally like climbing a post and and banging tables to drum up a a, a riot about the food yeah. and it's very broad and it's very like we're not gonna take it anymore and he and it's pretty tongue-in-cheek and you can see all of that mm-hmm. and then and I think they're playing those levels on purpose. Like it's not uh, sometimes when you have scenes like that, it's like, are they playing it serious? And we as an audience are seeing like the tongue in cheek or, or, or like a, a silliness to it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like, no, I think the performance, Hawk, Hawk, yeah. Hawkeye is tongue in cheek. Yes. He's in on the joke. Yeah. Uh, with um, it. And Aldo's performance makes that clear. And, and he does all of that, but it, you know, it's like, it's big arm movements and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then he's like talking about the ribs and everything. And you know, like that's pretty broad stuff. And then in the, the finale, at the you know at the at the kid's birthday party mm-hmm. he walks away and then he has kind of a quiet conversation facing away from the camera with the with the shrink and he's saying yeah i kind of have a hard time around kids right now and and i get that and that's part of what i'm dealing with and i'm de- i am dealing with it and it's like that's a pretty long monologue and it's really quiet and it's very introspective yeah and it's very much the opposite of i want ribs i'm sick of fish and liver yeah, the banging on the table version of of Hawkeye that we'd see. Yeah, he's he's really like, no, I'm I'm walking with my doctor with my hands in my pocket, and I'm I'm kind of like thinking through stuff, and I'm talking. And, and another like standout moment of performance, I think, is when he uh, is playing the realization that it wasn't a chicken that mm-hmm. died, but a baby. Oh yeah, uh, it's, it it's is big distressed. emotions, uh, but it, it's very different than the tongue and cheek emotions during the 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 ribs episode. Um, yeah, and he, so it's he, another he, pivot away from like the quietness that you're just identifying. Uh, that again, Aldo is able to nail because he's he's a very good actor. Yeah, he he has this very intense, and it's, I mean, it's very big and intense, but it's very pained. Like I don't want to remember this. Why did why did you make me remember this? That you know, like the, that's what he's saying, and it's like it's very affecting, and it feels very real. It's like no, I can. I can see this character rejecting that so hard and, and denying it so hard and being genuinely angry and frustrated that someone made him come to grips with it. He's like, no, I did not want to come to grips with this and you made me and I'm, I am angry at you. Yeah. And um, in terms of, Hawkeye as a character, I think we, you already labeled like a good chunk of the the kind of outsider trope uh, Ooh, or character so, type that he fills in. But I, I think can I say also, one oh, of my favorite ahead. things for the the outsider and the against the grainness uh-huh. uh, of him 
And I don't know if this is intentional, but I saw it and I was immediate like, yeah, yeah, that's Hawkeye near the end of, of the episode uh, of the finale. They have, you know, four surgeons operating in the in the space and everything. And they they have a, a shot where you're at, like the heads of all the patients yeah. and looking at everyone working simultaneously into the night after the, the treaty has been signed. The war's over, but they still have their work to do and everything. He is standing on the opposite side of the table from the other three. Mm, I, you and know, so, I didn't like, catch that, but those, I was right. Those three are in line facing one direction and he is in line and he's spaced well with everything, but he's on the other side of the table facing the other direction. Ooh, that is a, that is good mise en scène uh, for that. Um, but I was going to say one thing that's interesting about him in playing uh, that kind of outsider character often uh, in group dynamics, those kind of outsider characters remain on the fringe. So think about like your Wolverine and the X-Men, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but Alda uh, or Hawkeye as really the protagonist of, of MASH. I think he does function as a leader of this kind of ragtag group. And now bureaucratically speaking and military rank wise, he's not the leader. Uh, but I think he is uh, the one that all the characters seem to be turning to uh, and, and is often giving like the, uh, you know, setting the emotional pace mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for the space. Well, and I think, you know, I compared him to, to house, Mm-hmm. And in part because it's it's medical. And so it, like it draws the comparison, I think, kind of easily. Yeah. And Hawkeye is he like he is harsh and he is a jerk, but he's never a jerk to people. He's never he, he's a jerk about the situation. He's grumpy and curmudgeonly, but like he's not unpleasant on an interpersonal interaction. He is right. not calling people names. He is not insulting people. He is not degrading people. He right. is critical about mm-hmm. what's going on and he's not happy yeah but that never bleeds into hey you you're an idiot and now i'm sure I across you to feel 56 bad. episodes there may be still like a plot line where he loses it on someone where he's not mm-hmm. angry at the person he's angry about the situation or he lost a patient and he lashes out but then because of who hawkeye is even only knowing him by reputation and seeing a handful of episodes, you know, he'd go and apologize by the end. There's some, there'd be an implicit apology where Mm -hmm. he's like, look, I, I don't hate you. You are valuable. You are doing your job and I am doing my job. And yeah. And so there's, you know, something about him where it's like, okay, but he's not, he he is not negative to people. And I think Mm -hmm. that makes a big difference for allowing him to be that center. Yeah. We're like, I agree. If, if he was, you know, really, really just dis disrespectful to people. Honestly, it, it seems like um, uh, Winchester mm-hmm. is more belittling and demeaning to people than Hawkeye is. Yeah, I I, I think that's uh, again the character type. Though he is given probably the the biggest transformation in the finale, mm-hmm. uh, and and we see. I mean, even though we open up the episode with Hawkeye in a psychiatric unit, you've it feels like. Winchester has been more transformed than anyone else through mm-hmm. this, uh, yeah. you know, through the events of the finale. Yeah. Things that he valued, he can no longer value. Yeah. Him that... shattering his records is actually one of the saddest things that I can remember seeing in a long time on television. Yeah. Because but... it was the, the song that he had been teaching the, the prisoners of war. Yeah. And, and even again, like somehow just through cultural osmosis, I picked up his love of music. Like I knew that about that character. Mm-hmm. They establish it again in the finale. So if you've never seen an episode, I think you can catch on, but him listening to classical music, somehow that's something I knew. 
uh, and to see him like pick up and shatter his records, it is an affecting uh, visual <laughs> that that the series gives you. Again, not not a funny sitcom moment, but uh, just well written and acted and uh, filmed sequence that really does hit uh, about an impact of war. And it can seem so trivial to say, like, he can't appreciate classical music when we're talking about all the other impacts of war, the, mm-hmm. the amount of deaths that get listed, uh, the statistics that we get, the, you know, the, how many orphans there are. Uh, but that deeply personal impact for this one character, mm-hmm. I was surprised how affecting I found it. I I, I agree. So um, it was, that was uh, David Ogden Sires is mm-hmm. um, playing him. And and I like I felt really connected to him throughout the episode as as just like, OK, you know, this is a character. I can see the archetype. I can see the, you know, who this guy is. I can see the descendants of this character. Yeah, even to the point of like he he's playing an American upper class person. But it's like just it's like a, a British hint, accent, a hint enough of British accent, which is something that people will still say about like Frazier. And I was like, why do they speak with an almost British accent, but not quite? Well, it's because of this character tradition from Ash, and I'm sure there were probably some others before. Yeah, uh, I, it, I assumed it's a that character type. I assumed that he was actually British, you know, like just as a as a default because mm-hmm. there was enough of an accent, and and everyone else is like very American accents. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but the the path that he went through, and and I mean, it was not tremendously difficult to kind of see what this was going to be. Okay, he's going to begrudgingly connect to these people. And then something's going to happen and, and that's going to be really hard for him. But, you know, I just went and double checked. It says that the character is uh, from an upper-class family in Boston. Okay. His Uh, mother had been a concert pianist is the backstory. It's, uh, it's British, like, uh, like in the Haley Mills parent trap, the the people in Boston are British there (laughs) are are essentially British. (laughs) Yes. Oregon, uh, Frazier, <laughs> you know, yeah. it is that character type. Where it's also like, Boston. Does? Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you kind of see, okay, he's going to, to build connections. Like, okay, he's going to come to appreciate them. He's going to feel bad when they, when they go. And, and he does, you know, he, but he doesn't have the emotional intelligence to process all of that. And kind of the, the wound that he gets for, for lacking that sophistication, that, you know, social sophistication is okay. Something that you care about in your isolationist personal way is going to be forever changed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, we've got a few minutes left to talk about whoever else you want to pick. Uh, let's talk briefly about um, Hulahan. Like I said, it's the character that appeared the second most often in the whole series of mash. And I think if you were to watch the series from beginning to end, uh, maybe has some of the most different presentation. I think my senses at the beginning um, of the series, the nurses were not treated with, uh, you know, great individuality or uh-huh. attentiveness. Uh, but I mean, the finale, by, the, by, the, by the finale as well, to some degree. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah like, I, I would say all the other women that are there are just background wallpaper. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's, there's Hulahan uh, and, and Sun Lee. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Sun Lee uh, d- definitely does. Um, and that's one thing that... Um, was noted in uh, the TV, the book write up uh, here. Let me just find the passage real quick. That does address this part of it. It says, uh, let's see. Um, 
The only aspect of MASH that hasn't aged well is this portrait of women. If it was openly, uh, it was openly, if benignly sexist in its early years, though not as brutally as Altman's film MASH. Uh, But there were never any major recurring female characters except for Margaret, who spent the series early years as a cartoonish foil, besotted with Larry uh, Linville's Craven Major Frank Burns. She would mature over time and become Hawkeye's ally, uh, though their accord took away most of the humor associated with a character once known as Hot Lips Houlihan. Uh, For the most part, the other nurses were depicted as a Greek course for the men in the foreground as emblems of domesticity or motherly big sisterly nurturing uh during the off hours or sexual prizes uh occasionally they were so neglected that whenever they appeared the show worked their names into the dialogue so that we could tell them apart <laughs> the series doesn't deserve to be called misogynistic as the nurses were treated with affection uh but it was a homosocial show meaning it was concerned with male values in a male world uh, there's truth to the perception that in later years it became one of the most aggressively feminist series on network TV, thanks mainly to Aldo's influence behind the scenes. Um, but uh, for many, that's too little, too late. Essentially, is what they kind of say mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end. But but Houlihan's character, like her role in the finale, is finding her voice and her agency uh, in the face of domineering men around here, uh, around her most distinctly, her father, uh, and then also Winchester um, is kind of blowhardy towards her at the start of the finale, and but makes peace with her at the end. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think to think of uh, a character that I am sure initially in the series is basically there as, um, you know, a potential romantic interest for some of the men that are the real characters on the show <laughs> as, as they're being written uh, to reach that by the finale. Uh, I, th- I think shows some level of evolution behind the scenes in terms of the character story arcs that they want to be able to tell. Uh, so, you know, better end place than the beginning place. Unfortunately, that it took that long to get there, though. Mm -hmm. It feels very much like she has um, a a role in in the in in like the ensemble where she is wiser than a lot of the other characters. She is imparting, you know, some sense of support or wisdom when other people are losing control of things. And I remember in the um, in the dinner scene, she's next to the commanding officer. Mm hmm. And I was like, okay, she's she is leadership. Yeah, and and I, she definitely felt uh, by the finale at, like an integrated part of the group. Where it sounds mm-hmm. like, again, reading that summary from the book, or at least my memories of snippets, she was was not really a, like a core cog in the machinery of the mass unit in those early seasons. And she's coming across that way here at the end. Yeah, definitely. All right, Andrew, we probably need to be wrapping up here soon. Any final thoughts about MASH that you want to share? Um, I I don't know if I'll watch more of it, but I know that I'm going to remember what I have watched of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest, like I, I've been thinking like, no, oh, this could be my next background show just just to have on there, uh, especially now that I can calibrate my own expectations. And I think that is a sign of how important yeah, audience expectations are for reception of a, of a series like you're saying you can 100 see the quality of the show and the acting and the writing mm-hmm. but it's also if you were expecting to sit down for one hour of light comedy and ended up with three hours of fairly dramatic <laughs> somberness uh some of which is really uh, like the scene with the baby i was surprised they got that on network television i i it, cannot it's believe that 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 moment is part of the most watched piece of television ever. I'm like, how is everybody okay? Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, a lot of it is is very hard, and like I'd go in knowing, okay, most of it's not going to be there. That was um 
some swinging for the fences for the finale. Uh, and I would say the, you know, they hit, hit the fences, <laughs> you know, they, they cleared the fence uh, mm-hmm. with, with that swing for the finale for what they wanted to do. They were not trying to give a feel good wrap up to your favorite characters. They were leaning into the commentary that they, that they had actually built as a foundation of the show about the awfulness of war that, that they're, you know, there, no one's going to get out of this war unscathed. Uh, our, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our father, uh, you know, our, our priest is, is going to be uh, physically damaged. Uh, our, our our main character is going to be in the finale in a psychiatric uh, hospital uh, in denial. Um, you know, our uh, our blowhard is, is going to be uh, like scarred <laughs> emotionally because of what, what, what they saw. Um, and, but that's that's what they were doing. Uh, and, and they did it very well. Mm hmm. And it, it, I, I will just say again, uh, even though the U.S. population is just getting bigger and bigger, uh, nothing will ever be as watched as the MASH finale no. for scripted television just because there are so many more options. This was the era of three TV stations. Uh, I, I think the number is like 60% of all TVs that were turned on were watching MASH uh, at the finale, which you're like, well, there's only three. You know, it seems like it would almost always be there. But it was just the number of TVs that were actually on to watch this finale was so high. <laughs> Um, and uh, now there's just uh, the audience is so fractured between all your streaming options, all your cable channel options, all your DVR options. No one's there's no way you're getting that percentage of Americans to watch the same thing at the same time for scripted television. Mm-hmm. So keep that in your back pocket for trivia night, everyone. All right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. I honestly don't know if there's an outtake on the uh, other episode. Oh, yeah, we were pretty good. <laughs> oh, because we were feeling the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Can't goof around. <laughs> like, okay. I'm going to hit record, do something stupid, and then. <laughs> you can use this as the outtake over there. Yeah. <laughs> I probably will. <laughs>